I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. In this episode, Adam Schatz, one of the LRB's contributing editors, talks to Joshua Landis about Syria. Josh Landis is the director of the Centre for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and his blog, Syria Comment, has long been an indispensable guide to a country that has never been easy to see, both because of the nature of the Assad regime and because of the fog of war since the uprising began there in 2011. Here's the conversation. Joshua, thank you for talking to us. Well, it's a real pleasure and it's an honor to be on your um, podcast. Josh, uh, before the sarin attack in Idlib province, it seemed as if Trump would deliver on his promise to partner with the Russians and work with Assad uh, as a bulwark against the Islamic State. Whatever you think of that position, it represented a break with precedent. But then Assad carried out this gruesome attack and Trump responded not just with an airstrike, but with a variety of statements to the effect that he changed his very changeable mind on the conflict. What's your reading of Trump's Voltfass? Well, the way I understand Trump's Voltfass is that he's really reverting to the Obama doctrine, which is to maintain a red line on the use of chemical weapons, which he has done. Uh, I think that the th- this use of chemical weapons was a test. They hadn't, Sarin had not been used since 2013 when Obama uh, threatened to use force, but ultimately made a deal with the Russians to get rid of Syria's chemical weapons, which over 100 tons of which were put onto American ships and incinerated in 2013. And that held good. It was a, a success to the extent that not having chemical use weapons used was good for everybody in Syria. Of course, it did nothing for solving the civil war, for which he was bitterly criticized. But President Obama has upheld that, and he has really moved towards a an Obama position on abjuring the human rights violations of the Assad regime, while not really taking action to put somebody else in power or to destroy the regime or to kill Assad. This, you know, we have to wait and see. His security advisors have said that Assad can't be involved in the future of Syria, which is the Obama stand. They have abjured his human rights violations. But they have said, as McMaster, the national security advisor, said the other week, Assad has to go, but America's not going to make him go. So, that's that's really the Obama doctrine. And it, it, that is a pretty extraordinary shift, though, when you consider that Trump had said explicitly that he was abandoning Obama's position on the Syrian war. It absolutely is. And he had marked off of a rather clear policy during the campaign in which he argued the reverse of Obama and Clinton. And, and in particular, he, of course, was was targeting Clinton and her regime change policy in Libya which he said was a disaster and had spread chaos and extremist groups from one end of Libya to the other. And then he extended that criticism and he laid into President Bush 
and the Republican Party for getting us into stupid wars. He said that that regime change in Iraq was also a crazy idea that had spread chaos, terrorism, and al-Qaeda in Iraq. He called Although Iraq, he'd initially been a supporter of the Iraq War, which, of course, uh, he denied. Well, his one statement supporting the Iraq War was when he was cornered on a talk show about sex, and he was asked, don't you support the invasion of Iraq? And he said, well, I guess so. You know, it was a very lukewarm he, he he clearly didn't want to discuss it. And then later on, he came out against it. So it's, it's you know, he's vacillated. But he, he you're right. He, he didn't take a clear stand in the very beginning of the Iraq war. And uh, he wants to be where the people are, I think. And he was following whatever he thought would be popular at the time. The point is, is that he, he drew during the campaign this broad criticism of regime change and U.S. involvement in the Middle East. And he criticized, he said that, in fact, he implied that human rights had not been advanced by following the game plan of regime change, attacking dictators, and getting rid of these evil dictators, soi-disant. And that this had, in fact, created much more suffering in the world. And that what you needed, he suggested, was a page out of the Putin playbook, which is strongmen in the Middle East to do what we had done under presidents like Reagan, where we had supported dictators in Latin America and the Middle East in order to bring stability and to, to, to fight this, the Soviet Union. And so he said stability dictators, which suggested that Assad would be that dictator in Syria. And he had embraced Sisi in Washington only a few days before the sarin attack, and said what an extraordinary job he was doing. And of course, Sisi is very much allied with Assad. Yeah, yes, Sisi has supported Assad because he does not want more dictators overturned because it'll, you know, it, it'll undermine his own presidency. So, but now he's had to walk away. President Trump has had to walk away from that tough, very simple view of the Middle East because it put human rights really in the back seat. Then the sarin gas use forced him to calibrate that message. And his administration came forward and said, you know, we can't reject human rights. We, we've got to uphold both stability and human rights, which, which puts us back to where we began with the Obama doctrine of how do you, you know, walk this delicate line. Between and I imagine, Josh, that the fact that Trump has expressed horror over the sight of these massacred children, and yet at the same time is unwilling to allow other children uh even to enter the United States from Syria, and moreover, that he's not really willing to take on other grotesque violations of human rights inside Syria. I imagine with that, uh, that, that package, as it were, is a, a bitter pill to swallow for people close to the opposition in Syria who might say, how can you express such selective horror? I mean, dying in a barrel bomb attack isn't any better than being murdered with sarin gas. A absolutely. This raises all the hypocrisies of the West, where they're willing to intervene to stop an international norm like like sarin, but they're not willing to intervene to to um, stop the killing in the civil war. And, and it underlines also other hypocrisies, which is that the United States had bombed um, al-Qaeda in exactly the same province, Idlib province, only a week before the use of sarin gas, had, had hit a mosque by accident and killed 60 people, the same, roughly the same number of people killed by sarin. 
it, it underlines all of these delicate issues of who's right, who's wrong, what role should America play? I'm curious, how are the other parties, the various parties to the Syrian conflict, the state, the rebels, uh, the states that are supporting different factions in the Syrian conflict, how, how are they interpreting Trump's reversion to the Obama doctrine of conflict management, of expressions of selective horror over human rights abuses without actually uh, doing anything to bring the conflict to an end? Well, you know, most opposition members are trying to spin Trump as someone who's going to intervene, who's not Obama, and is going to bring some measure of justice to Syria. I don't know whether they really believe it or whether they're just putting this message out in order to try to build some momentum and some pressure on the people around Trump to actually take that next move to do something about Assad and to begin to rearm the Syrian opposition. That's, so in that regard, Josh, they're not very different from others who've expressed such pipe dreams. Uh, I'm thinking of liberal hawks like Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, who praised uh, Trump for carrying out the airstrike. Right. Uh, it, you know, everybody is hopeful that Trump is going to do what they they want him to do. And we've we've seen that as a, as a powerful um, – that's been a powerful element to his getting elected – and so I, I think many people in his administration are are using the airwaves to try to lay out these possibilities and to keep people hoping that he's going to fulfill their ambitions in Syria. My, my suspicion is that they're going to um, be sorely disappointed. Uh, Josh, for a number of years, we've heard occasional rumors that Russia or Iran was less committed to Assad as a figure than to the preservation of their interests inside Syria, uh, whatever whatever those uh, happen to be, and that if those interests were protected, they might be willing to relinquish their support for him and pave the way for a transition to another government. Uh, but that's not how it seems to have worked out. Um, and the impression one gets is that they've really dug in their heels about Assad staying in power. Why is it that Assad is so important to them? It's because it's very difficult to replace the Assad family and to keep the regime integral and to preserve its strength and the legitimacy legitimacy that it, it remain that remains to it. And this is you know, this is the problem that we've seen many times before. You get rid of Qaddafi, you get rid of Saddam Hussein, and the entire structure of these regimes falls away. Because precisely because these dictators have built the regimes in this fashion, so that they are coup-proofed, because Syria was a, a land of great instability from 1949, just a few years after independence, when there were three coups, and then there were a series of coups and government changes, tremendous instability. Syria was the banana republic of the Middle East for 20 years after its independence. Assad comes along 1970 and stops that. He stops it by building a regime based around loyalty to him and his family. His brother is the head of is the head of uh, the Republican Guard that protects Damascus and the presidency. Cousins are very senior in the security structure, and then Alawites, his co-religionists, crowd the top upper ranks of the security state. That means both the army and the intelligence agencies. And in this way, he uses traditional loyalties to cement his permanency. That means if you take out that person, that family, 
there's nothing to hold it together at the core. The various Alawite generals would begin to fight each other for power, as the generals had been doing before Assad consolidated power. There would be no um, sort of central tent peg around which legitimacy and agreed loyalty was built. And this is what America found in Iraq. It tried to build a regime based not on loyalty to the man or to the single party, the Ba'ath Party. And there was no agreed upon loyalty factor in Iraq. And it, it became, by default, sectarianism. And even deeper than that, there were a lot of different groups within the Shiites that fought against each other. And it's been very difficult it's rather striking, Josh, that in Syria, um, a minority sect, the Alawites, uh, rather like the, the Sunni minority um, in Iraq, uh, uh, created a state um, or dominated a state based on a superficially universal ideology, the ideology of, of pan-Arabism. Syria, of course, was, uh, was known as the beating heart of uh, pan-Arabism uh, during, uh, during the Cold War. Um, and I think what you're what you're suggesting is that um, that in Syria, as in Iraq, or uh, for that matter, um, in a, a country like Yugoslavia, where Yugoslav identity was most passionately embraced by a minority, the Serbs, that um, that this this uh, this universal ideology essentially became a fig leaf for what were a network of family and clan interests. A absolutely, and we see that right across the Middle East, where Arab nationalism was the was the presiding ideology from the successful struggle against colonialism that ends at the end of World War II, when both Britain and France retreat from the Middle East. Now, that's partly not because of the success of Arab nationalism; it's largely because Europe was in its own civil war, 30 years war between World War I and II, and it weakened itself so severely that it had to withdraw from the Middle East. And But Arab nationalism became the prevailing ideology right up until it's been the Iranian revolution where Islamism successfully challenged it there, but then continued to build Islamist parties around the Middle East. And today, Arab nationalism is really a very weak, weak read. You know, Arafat, gone in Palestine, Boumediene, uh, Bin Ali, Saddam Hussein. In, in many ways, Assad is the last of these. So was Arab nationalism particularly attractive to minority groups like the Alawites um, or, or the Sunnis in Iraq because it was a way for them to transcend their minority status, submerge themselves in something larger, and, and also, in a sense, conceal, um, uh, conceal themselves within a larger community of interests? Absolutely. It was a way to safety for minorities. They embraced Arab nationalism more heartily than... Sunni Arabs. Now, of course, there was an elite of Sunni Arabs who who also embraced it. That was very important that there were these sort of cross-cutting alliances between minorities and a Sunni elite, all of whom saw Arab nationalism as the way to bind together these very fragmented um, societies and to build the foundations for a new state. I mean, people bought nationalism after World War I. It was the growing ideology. But because the nationalist governments turned out to be, in fact, hijacked by minorities, it's important to understand 
that minorities were able to come to power and to grab authority in the state in every one of the Levantine countries after World War II. And this is largely because of the colonial occupation. The colonial powers, Britain and France, used minorities to divide and conquer and to, to keep their power in all these countries. And this meant that minorities were able to grab the state once colonial powers left. This is true for the Maronites of Lebanon, the Catholic Christians of Lebanon, the Alawites of Syria, who are about 12% of the population, the Sunnis of Iraq, 20% of the population, and also the Jews of Palestine, who were a third of the population by the time the British withdrew in 1948 and they got independence. To some extent, that was also true of the Kabyles of Algeria, who were at one and the same at one and the same time disproportionately influential and uh, intermittently uh, persecuted and, and forced to repress uh, their um, their their ethnic identity. Well, and and it's tr it's true of the Hashemite dynasty in Jordan as well, which in some ways was a foreign um, implant in Jordan. Not that foreign because it's only from Arabia, the Hejaz, and it has Islamic legitimacy. But in all of them, they've been challenged, these minoritarian states. Now, the Jews were able to become a majority. They're the only minority that were able to become a majority in numerical population because through war and because two-thirds of the Palestinians either fled or were driven out of Palestine. And of course, the process is not an easy one. It's still the Palestinians are still trying to get a hunk of the state, but their their fortunes seem to diminish with every year. In a sense, you're almost arguing that what we're seeing now in Iraq and Syria are latter-day Nakbas. Yes, we are, because the majority population is trying to get rid of minoritarian rule. And that begins in 1975 in Lebanon with the Lebanese Civil War, which was driven at its most simplistic level by the Muslim population, which had grown to to be 60, 65%, 60% perhaps, 55%. And it was a majority of the Lebanese population. And it looked up at the Maronites and the Christians that were presiding, had a lion's share of power and said, why should you rule? One man, one vote. And it used dem democracy and the call for democracy to, to challenge the supremacy of the Christians. The Christians, of course, were terrified. They thought if we lose power, we're going to be driven out in the same way that Armenians had been driven out of Turkey and so forth. Of course, so they, in all the they, cases they, you're describing, Lebanon, Iraq, now Syria, uh, not a single one of these conflicts has been a, a, a pure, in, a purely internal struggle. In, in each of these cases, the borders of the state have been porous and permeable and powerful outside actors have profoundly uh, shaped and and made more violent the dynamics of the internal conflict um, in Lebanon, for example, um, the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, exerted a, a very significant influence since you had a a large Palestinian refugee community and the PLO was based there, et cetera, et cetera. And now with both Iraq and Syria, we see uh, no less intense dynamics of of external meddling, both by regional powers and by international powers. Absolutely. All these wars turned into regional wars and not just regional wars, but also 
uh, international powers because they got they pulled in the Cold War, Russia and America, which were competing. Today, of course, the dynamic is Iran versus Saudi Arabia, Shiites versus Sunnis. Those are the fault lines in the Middle East. But Russia, of course, has sided with the Shiites, and America has sided with the Sunnis, by and large. And and so those divisions go right up onto an international level. They're very geostrategic. They're not just about religion. They're being driven by geostrategic struggle for balance of power. That actually brings me to another question I wanted to ask you about Iran's uh, main ally um, or proxy force in the Syrian conflict, Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia political and military organization led by uh, its general secretary, Syed Hassan Nasrallah. Hezbollah has played a critical role in protecting the Assad regime, and it's it's made two claims about its support. Uh, one uh, made early uh, by Nasrallah um, in the conflict is that is that uh, Hezbollah is fighting against uh against takfiris against uh against extreme jihadists um the other claim is that is that it's fighting to defend uh, shia shrines um in syria um hezbollah hasn't spoken much about its major reason for entering the conflict or what some believe to be its major conflict protecting its supply line so that iran can continue to provide it with weapons uh josh can you assess hezbollah's relationship to the assad regime and its long-term project in syria I'm also wondering if if Hezbollah is successful in protecting the regime, um, how might this affect Israeli-Syrian relations as Hezbollah potentially acquires greater influence and power inside Syria? Is there a greater chance that uh, Israel might be tempted to get drawn into the war? Uh, Yes. We do have to see this as a regional war, which is what you're outlining. In a sense, there is a super struggle going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran, between Sunnis and Shiites, for authority, influence, and dominance in the Middle East. And what we're seeing happen in the northern Middle East, that's Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, is that Sunni minor, um, Shiite minorities in Lebanon, Hezbollah, Syria, the Assad regime, the Alawites, and of course, a Shiite majority in Iraq, which has been brought to power by the United States and really unclinched this regional war and allowed for a reshuffling of the balance of power. And it allowed for Iran to see a way to dominate the entire northern Arab world. And it has tried to, it is made sure that Hezbollah has been the paramount power in Lebanon. And despite attempts by Israel in 2006 and others to to destroy Hezbollah, Hezbollah has reigned supreme, keeping Assad in power. That's the civil war in Syria. And of course, consolidating its grip with the Shiites in Iraq. This allows for what some people, King Abdullah of Jordan, called the Shiite Crescent. And that's a, that is helped Iran to consolidate its power over the north. Of course, Saudi Arabia and Israel see this as a real challenge to their own stability. They fret over this consolidation of Iranian support. They do not want Hezbollah and Iran at their border along the Golan Heights and along the the Syrian border as well as the Lebanese border. That is a net loss for Israel, and it's led some of the leaders of Israel to make an argument that ISIS is better than Hezbollah. And and that 
that shows you the geostrategic element in this. Saudi Arabia, of course, also has supported the rebels, supported the Sunnis, hoped very much that the Sunnis in Syria would become the paramount power and overthrow the Assad regime. Turkey jumped in on this. Israel has supported it. And it's created this rather odd alliance between the Gulf states and Israel and Turkey against Iran, Iraq, Hezbollah, um, and Russia. So that's the that are, those are the stakes, and what we're seeing in many ways is the consolidation of this Iranian um, security arc stretching from Lebanon to Iran over the Middle East. And the United States is also very concerned about it, and we hear from Trump people. Iran, of course, since the early 1980s with the creation of Hezbollah during the Israeli invasion— um, uh, Iran has uh, viewed Lebanon as its lung in the Arab Middle East. Um, but just to push a, a little bit against your remark about the Shia Crescent, it's also striking that Hezbollah has been quite deft in cultivating an alliance inside Lebanon with a substantial share uh, of, uh, of of the Christian population, Christians who are afraid of Sunni jihadists. Um, and so although from one vantage point, Hezbollah has put Lebanon in harm's way by entering the Syrian conflict um, on the side of Assad, uh, from another vantage point, Hezbollah has protected Lebanon, uh, both its uh, Shia and Christian communities, from the threat of uh, Sunni radicalism. Uh, yes. No, Shiites today, by many Christians in Lebanon, as well as in Syria and in Iraq, are seen as protectors. Protectors because they're minorities. And there is this sort of minority uh, closing of ranks against the fear of Islamism and Salafism, that if Salafism becomes a predominant power in the region, the Christians will be driven out. So they see the Assad government and Hezbollah and Iran ultimately as protectors of their own status in the Middle East. And that's that's what General Aoun, who is now president of Lebanon, has championed that outlook on the world. But the Christians are very split in Lebanon, um, not so much in Syria. Pierre-Jean Louisard, a French uh, specialist uh, on the Middle East, uh, published two years ago a much-discussed book called um, La, The Piège Daesh, or The Daesh Trap, The Trap of the Islamic State. In that book, he argued that Sunni Muslims in Iraq and Syria um, had been driven into the arms of the Islamic State not because they share its ideology or its ambitions, but rather because their aspirations had been crushed by authoritarian, intolerant, and sometimes murderous forces, um, often with the assistance of outside actors, including the United States. Um, so uh, to put it crudely, if you have to choose between living in the caliphate and having your head drilled by a Shia militia, you're going to choose the caliphate. Uh, now that Assad seems to be prevailing, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, and now that parts of the international community are willing to, to tolerate him remaining in power, if only as a bulwark against the Islamic State, won't this possibly drive more Sunnis in Iraq and Syria towards the Islamic State? Um, Josh, what kind of future can be imagined for Sunnis who feel besieged in these countries? Well, that, that brings up a very good question, which is how do you rebuild the comity, the sort of the modus vivendi between these different groups in society. And that is, you know, that's very difficult to do because we're, we're seeing the intolerance becomes a vicious circle, as you say. The more the struggle goes on, 
the more it becomes violent, the more the two groups learn to distrust each other and to begin to view each other not as part of the same nation, but as different nations, different peoples. So when somebody says Assad is killing his own people in Idlib, to a certain extent, Assad no longer sees it that way. He sees those people as aliens who don't belong to Syria, that they are terrorist, crypto-Saudi agents who are being run by America and Turkey, who are trying to destroy the Syrian nation. That's the way he speaks about it. That's the way he sees it. And I think he's convinced a lot of his followers to look at it in the same way. They, of course, see Assad very much as a fifth column, who is an agent of Iran, who is an unbeliever, and a Majus, as the, one of the favorite epithets in the war videos and opposition languages, Majus meaning Magi, uh, somebody from the East, a pre-Islamic Persian, Zoroastrian. And, and so both sides have come to demonize the other. So they no longer see each other as being fellow countrymen. How do you then repair those divides? We, we're facing the same problem in Iraq. How do we bring Kurds, Sunnis, and Shiites together to form a common Iraqi nationalism with power sharing. Is that a, a reasonable objective or are we banging our head against a wall? People disagree on that. Also, Josh, who's going to do it? I mean, ultimately, the solution has to come from inside these countries. It can't be imposed. And the idea that, uh, that, that quote, unquote, unquote, we can do it uh, sounds like uh, another imperial folly. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, I've been making an argument about what I call the great sorting out for a number of years now and comparing what's going on in the 11 states to what went on in Central Europe during the interwar years and the Second World War. Um, in some ways, this comparison is too um, – it's too grim and perhaps cynical about nation building in the Middle East. But I think it's an, it, it provides an important corrective to a U.S. policy which has believed that it can preserve the borders of all of these states and create a power-sharing arrangement that will bring happiness and will ultimately bind together these different peoples in an organic community. So they won't be different peoples. They'll be the same people who just have little teeny differences. And that's really a central argument for all the policymakers about how to proceed in the uh, Middle Is East. this federalism or neo-Ottomanism you're talking about? Well, the, the, the trouble is, is that what we saw with the great sorting out in Europe is that all of these new states that were created out of, out of multi-ethnic, multi-religious empires after World War I, the class of 1919, as I call them. That includes uh, over nine nation states in Central Europe that were created whole cloth or re reconstituted in the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, where different peoples were asked to form an organic community and become a nation. These multi-ethnic empires that were destroyed in World War I, the empire-destroying war, the Russian Empire, German Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and for our purposes, the Ottoman Empire, were turned into nation-states. And 
they've failed spectacularly. And they've le- it's led to the process of this great sorting out where Poland, for example, was 64% Poles before World War II. By the end of World War II, by 1950, it was 100% Polish. That meant the destruction of 3 million Jews, the, the um, ethnic cleansing of 5 million Germans, mostly at the end of the war. And Ruthenians, that's Ukrainians and Lithuanians, were also driven out. In Czechoslovakia, we see the same thing, where the Sudeten Germans, three million, were destroyed, as well as all the Jews. And then the Czechs and Slovaks, two of the most, you know, seemingly um, liberal peoples, could not live together and chose their Velvet Revolution. I take your point, and clearly Europe did see, as you call it, a great sorting out. Uh, but of course, that term, uh, as you're using, it describes a, a set of very different processes, or I, I should say historical events and catastrophes ranging from the final solution, the, ex- the extermination of, uh, of, of European Jewry, um, uh, to the ethnic cleansing that took place at the very end of and in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, what all these events share is the fact that they're, they are not the sorting out of primordial identities so much as they are political events driven by war, state interests, racial ideology, etc. And, and so to bring the conversation back to the Middle East, I think there is unfortunately a danger in the West conversation about sectarian warfare uh, to treat these identities as if they were primordial and as if this conflict uh, that we've been seeing in Iraq and, and in Syria uh, is somehow natural, that that the sorting out is a natural process when, in fact, Syrian and Iraqi Sunni and Shia Muslims and Christians lived together for centuries with only episodes uh, of internecine conflict. Um, what we're seeing now is actually quite exceptional. You're absolutely right, Adam. Uh, this should not be mistaken for primordialism. These identities, religious identities, had been accommodated in the Ottoman Empire as they had been in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where you see cities like Jerusalem, Damascus, Aleppo, Baghdad have very distinct quarters for Armenians, Shiites, Sunnis, Jewish quarter, Catholic Orthodox, all these different quarters where people lived cheek by jowl. Now they didn't. That didn't necessarily mean that they saw each other as equals, but they had much more in common than separated them. There might be walls between these different um, sections of town, but the Ottoman Empire was able to contain the centrifugal forces of these many different groups and keep them. And that was the power of the Ottoman. That's why the Ottoman Empire lasted for 500 years. It's one of the central arguments that every historian makes is that the Ottoman Empire was more successful than Spain, than much of medieval Europe, because it accommodated these different identities and peoples in a, in a happy empire. And Jews fled Spain where they were evicted and came to Istanbul where they were protected. And so it's nationalism. It's a very modern notions of community and difference that turn these identities into something completely different. It's they're radically changed. And unfortunately, these religious differences, which had sat more lightly on people, get turned into very important differences. And that's why we're seeing Shiite and Sunni all of a sudden 
recognizing who they are. People who didn't even know the difference really are now, they become profoundly important in the same way that Czechs and Slovaks or so forth. In a, in a way, religion has become the new ethnicity in the Middle East. And that's a, that's a great danger because it does rip people apart. And it leads to things like the Armenians being um, the Holocaust of the Armenians with the rise of Turkish nationalism, the driving out of Palestinians with the rise of Jewish nationalism. And nationalism is a very brutal force. And that's, I guess, the point of my argument is that we shouldn't look at nationalism as something that's not important that doesn't reorganize people because Americans think that they can shape the national identities of the peoples of the Middle East much too easily, where it's much more difficult to get an Arab-Israeli peace or to get Sunnis and Shiites to sit down together in Iraq uh, after something like, you know, retaking Mosul. We shouldn't underplay the difficulties because we will make mistakes that lead to further violence. Do you think the United States, with its planned overthrow of the Saddam regime, uh, bears at least some of the responsibility for this outcome? I do. I do. I think that kicking over the anthill in Iraq led to a much more violent uh, sorting out, if you will, of this problem than had Iraqis been left to deal with it on their own. Now, of course, Probably Kurds and Shiites will f will beg to differ with me because, by and large, many Kurds and Shiites in Iraq are happy that Saddam Hussein was destroyed and that his Ba'ath Party and so forth because they were being brutally dealt with by the us by the by Saddam Hussein's regime, and yet because we used force, we misunderstood the nature of Iraqi society. We thought we could build this power sharing new Iraqi nation that would become democratic, that people would embrace us. We got that completely wrong. And what we did is we tripped this sectarian and ethnic war uh, that has killed hundreds of thousands of people and then led to the growth of the spread of al-Qaeda throughout much of Iraq and now ISIS. It's been a very violent process. If, you know, we don't know. Ultimately, this is counterfactual history, and it's hard to assess how things are going to end up. I've had many neoconservatives argue to me rather convincingly that they use the, the pressure cooker metaphor, and they say, better to take the top off and kill the dictator today before the pressure builds up even more tomorrow. There'll be a civil war, but civil wars are inevitable, and it'll be a smaller civil war if we kick the top, kill a dictator today than if we let it sit there for another decade. I'm not convinced by that argument. I don't think that we know that much, and I don't think it's true. The, the only way to counter that argument is to use the Soviet Union as a model, to say, if you don't kick it over and you don't invade it, it's possible that the elites at some point will realize the system is so corrupt and dysfunctional that they will change their attitudes. You'll have a meltdown. You'll have some violence. You'll have some, a lot of poverty. But it won't be as bad as the transformation of the Soviet Union was from a communist country to a sort of statist 
crony capitalism as it is today, that that evolution, no matter how painful it was, was nothing like had America invaded and tried to build a democratic country uh, using military force. Uh, during the Afghanistan war, uh, a new term emerged, and that was AFPAC, as 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 if Afghanistan and Pakistan were a single territorial unit. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that there's now something called Iraq-Syria? I do. I do because it's gotten sucked into this regional war. It's become very sectarianized, the conflict. And what we saw were the emergence of an ISIS state, a, a Sunni, very sectarian state that emerged from the outskirts of Baghdad, stretching already all the way to the outskirts of Aleppo, and including really all that tribal, Arab tribal desert civilization that is stuck between those two capitals and bound them together into one state. That Sunni Arab state that emerged there and, and endured for a few years before America decided to destroy it was an expression of an emerging national identity. I think if the United States had not intervened and that state had been allowed to survive there, it might have found legs. It might have developed institutions and evolved over the years into something much more acceptable, but we don't know. The United States has decided that international borders are important and that it's going to preserve them and it's going to crush that Sunni sectarian state that was aborting there. And um, so in that sense, I think that these two countries, Iraq and Syria, have in a sense become joined at the hip in the effort to destroy ISIS. As much as ISIS emerged in between them, now in the effort to destroy it, we're getting Iranian influence embedded both in Baghdad and Damascus, a sectarianization of those two states has become deeper and the populations have been divided along those sectarian lines. And that brings those two states together. What happens on one side of that border immediately flows over to the other side of that border. Josh, uh, you've talked about the relationship between uh, Sunnis and Shia in both Iraq and Syria. Uh, both of those countries also have substantial Kurdish populations. Uh, can you talk a bit about the dynamics of the Kurdish question in Iraq and Syria, particularly in relation to Turkey's ambitions? Well, the single people who have benefited from the collapse of the Iraqi and Syrian state are the Kurds. As we recall, after World War I, the Kurds did not get a state. And they've always complained that they're one of the biggest ethnic groups or should-be nations that did not get a state. And now they are getting states. A state has emerged, a de facto state, in northern Iraq. And that began with a no-fly zone that the United States imposed in 1990 during the first Gulf War. And it has evolved since. And today, the Kurds are virtually independent in northern Iraq. The schools teach in Kurdish. Most Kurds below the age of 30 do not know Arabic or know it at a very elementary level because the second language is English taught in Kurdistan and northern Iraq. In Syria, the Kurds are 10% of the population rather than 20% as they are in Iraq. But they dominate. They have, they're a compact minority 
and they are the majority in parts of northern Syria, northeastern Syria. And they have taken those regions. They have built their own army. They have a political leadership. And this, of course, has infuriated Turkey because the political leadership in Syria hived off from the PKK or the Turkish Workers' Party that Turkey sees as a tremendous danger to national sovereignty inside Turkey because perhaps 20 million Turks are Kurdish. They live largely in the eastern part of Turkey. Turks are worried that if the Kurds gain independence in Turkey, they'll lose the entire eastern part of their country. And so they want to crush this emerging Kurdish state in the north of Iraq, a state and a population with which the United States has formed a deep alliance, is now arming and training in order to destroy ISIS territory in Syria. And that group, the PYD, is the Syrian branch of the PKK, which not only Turkey, but also the United States uh, regards as a terrorist organization, just to add to the complexity. Indeed. And in fact, the United States has tried to split the difference and say that the PYD is not the PKK. It has not designated it as a terrorist organization, even though it designates the PKK as a, a terrorist organization. So the United States has has you know, finessed that problem. Turkey is not convinced at all that the United States is doing something. Uh, Turkey is convinced that by arming the PYD, this is going to come back and haunt Turkey because those arms, that professional army is going to seep across the border, is going to be used to help the PKK in Turkey launch a war, a war which is already going on at, at, a, at a low level, but it could become much more violent in the future. So Turkey is furious and America needs to do this because President Trump and, and President Obama promised the American public that it would destroy ISIS. And the PYD are the best fighters, the most reliable fighters against ISIS. And now adding to the ambiguities of the relationship between Turkey and its Kurdish population is the fact that the PKK and its leader, Abdullah Öcalan, who's in jail, have at least in public shifted their demands from national independence um, in territories where Kurds are the majority in Turkey to a call for equality and cultural or national recognition inside Turkey as, as citizens. In other words, the claim of Turkish Kurds is that they're not looking to break away from Turkey and set up their own republic. They want equality and language rights inside uh, inside Turkey. Now, if I'm correct, my sense is that the Erdogan government simply doesn't take them at their word and finds it more convenient to make war with the Kurds than to reach an accommodation with them. Yes. I mean, part of this is political calculation in order to consolidate his own power and to fan the flames of nationalism, which were down to his favor. But part of it, I think, is the, the anxiety of the slippery slope, the belief that most Kurds in their hearts want independence. The idea is that if you start giving them language rights, their own schools, and a federalism, that it will only end with independence. And that that's that's the fear. There is some basis for that fear. I mean, one has to only travel in northern Iraq to see how, you know, nobody the Kurds, the Kurds are are bringing up for a vote independence uh imminently. So this is what the anxiety is is that if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. 
One of the more surprising developments in the last six months in Syria, Josh, has been the shift in Turkey's position. Uh, Turkey had always been the most enthusiastic backer, aside from the Gulf states, perhaps even more than the Gulf states, of the rebel groups, and arguably the most lax in permitting jihadists of various stripes to gain the upper hand in the rebellion. Uh, Now, uh, under pressure from uh, attacks by ISIS um, inside Turkey, uh, the Erdogan government has shifted at least tactically towards an alliance with Russia, which is Assad's main backer. How do you understand this shift in position? Well, the shift is because Turkey couldn't beat Russia. Turkey shot down a Russian airplane 2015 that briefly traversed its territory. Russia is backing Assad. Turkey was backing the Syrian opposition and the rebels. The two came into conflict because of this. And Turkey could not prevail. Russia began to rebuild Assad's state and was pushing the rebels back into Turkey. Turkey tried to call Russia's bluff, take down this airplane. It looked to NATO to back it up and to the United States. The United States was unwilling to back up Russia. I mean, excuse me, unwilling to back up Turkey. And and that's when I think Turkey realized this is a losing, we're not going to win this. We've got to about face. And when Trump in his election uh, campaign said, we don't want to fight Russia, we're going to support the dictators of the Middle East. And it, it became, you know, it became very obvious that if Turkey didn't rep- you know, make a rapprochement with Russia, that it was going to be the odd man out. And so it made that about face. Now, it's also important that Russia is a much bigger trading partner with Turkey than the United States. Uh, There's $30 billion worth of trade. Russia had begun to cut off that trade and put sanctions on Turkey. So Turkish businessmen we're screaming bloody murder. Essentially, we've reached the phase in the conflict where it's been grinding along for so long and so futilely that outside backers who once professed these grand principles are uh, casting them aside and digging in their heels around their core economic assets. Absolutely. And, you know, also the rebels played their part in this, the Syrian rebels, because they remained very divided. They became increasingly dominated by extremist groups like al-Qaeda and Ahrar al-Sham. And Turkey found it very difficult, just the way the United States had before it, found it difficult to justify giving more arms to what became increasingly radical groups like ISIS. And ISIS began to attack Erdogan, blowing up bombs in Turkey. So this became untenable. Turks revolted against it. They did not want their government to send more arms into Turkey that they feared would come back and blow up Turks. So all those factors militated towards this about face by Erdogan. And and he's he, he's made this about face, but at the same time, he's clearly challenging Russia in Syria. He's continuing to send arms to the opposition groups to support them. And we've seen this uh, recent offensives in Idlib pushing down towards Hama, um, which are very much backed by Turkey and Saudi Arabia that continue to want more leverage against Assad. And the way they get that is by building up the rebels. So they haven't given up the game. They, they, they're, they're going along with Russia, but they're pursuing their own independent policies at the same time. 
Now, Josh, you know, we haven't spoken much about the Syrian people, except to say that increasingly Syrians see many of their co-nationals as no longer belonging to the same community because the cleavages along sectarian lines and political lines had become so bitter and so lethal. And so in a sense, one great question is, who are the Syrian people? What will their future be? Uh, will their future even be inside Syria? Uh, about 5 million Syrians uh, have left the country. Um, many of them are attempting to settle in uh, Western countries that have closed their doors, including, of course, the United States. Question is, um, and, and perhaps it is unanswerable because there are no polls, but I felt that I should ask you, what is your sense of how Syrians view their future, the possible future of their country? What kind of solution um, in Syria, what kind of settlement could attract the support of a majority of Syrians and allow them eventually to rebuild this brutalized country, this utterly shattered country, which had once been one of the more welcoming countries in the Middle East? Boy, that's the million-dollar question. It's very hard to see through this. Um, it's hard to see into the future. You know, on the one hand, one can look at this as a major tectonic shift in identity and power in the northern Middle East, on a par to what happened in the 12th century when Shiite lords dominated much of northern Syria and were a powerful element supported by Persia. The Mamluks and then following them, the Ottomans changed that. They pushed out the Shiites, marginalized them. They became very uh, impotent. And the Arab world became a Sunni world led by the Ottoman Empire. Today, you could see something like the 12th century coming back uh, with Shiites predominating in the north. Now, a lot of Sunnis argue, you know, Assad is a flash in the pan. Shiite power in Syria it's not going to last but a moment because there aren't very many Shiites. There are only 12% Alawites. Shiites are about one, 12 are Shiites, about 1% Druze, 3% Christians are 3%. This is tiddlywinks. Not more than 20% of Syrians are minorities, religious minorities. But, you know, political power can be very um, enduring if Iran, Hezbollah, Iraq all secure their alliance. And that means that Sunnis in Syria could live under this kind of a regime, a regime that's backed by Iran for a long time. If that happens, um, identities are likely to shift once again to be plastic and to be reworked. I don't know how that happens. But that's a possibility or the, 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 the argument, the counter argument that the Assad regime is going to explode. This insurgency is not going to go away. It's going to continue that the, the Sunni Arabs will prevail. I, I'm worried that if Saudi Arabia, Turkey. Well, one wonders for the sake of what? Because I wouldn't say that the great slogan of the rebellion today is the establishment of a democratic society based on the rule of law. No, it isn't. And, and, and what I worry about is if the United States tries to build a Sunni enclave in eastern Syria, which is one of the proposals. In fact, about six different think tanks in Washington have proposed this at various levels, is some kind of a autonomous region in the Euphrates Valley, the valley that the, the region that's going to be taken away from ISIS, which constitutes about 35% of Syrian land. 
there are many people in Washington who want a sort of US mandate over this where Sunni Arabs will be built up as an autonomous force. Uh, which Arabs, which tribal groups, which rebel groups would lead that? We don't know. But that's the argument. Now, I don't think the United States will do it because I don't think anybody in this administration has the patience or the desire to really nation build in eastern Syria. This sounds to me like an echo of Leslie Gelb's plan for a quote unquote three state solution in Iraq. It, well, it is. And it's a it's a it's a continuation of the notion of that America was helping the rebels uh, to defeat Assad. And now longer is it we're not we're not going to drive Assad out of the four cities, but we will set up this quasi-independent part of Syria as a no-safe zone with its own leaders. So it's it's really just a downsizing of the initial uh, Obama plan, which was to bring about a Sunni ascendancy in Syria through supporting the rebels. Now it's supporting them only in this ex-ISIS territory. But whether that comes to pass or not, the point that I, I think... The, the thing that f frightens me because of my seeing this as a great sorting out is that if Saudi Arabia and the U.S. and others continue to fund rebellion by the Sunni populations of Iraq and Syria, they're likely to get crushed with the, the present disposition of power in the Middle East, that it could lead to ethnic cleansing. And we've seen an element of ethnic cleansing already against the Sunnis. I mean, most of the 5 million Syrians that have fled Syria are Sunnis from rebel areas that have been badly bombed. That's true in Iraq with the crushing of cities like Ramadi, where 80% of the housing stock was destroyed, a Sunni city, to Crete. Um, and, and now Mosul, a much bigger city, which is being very badly destroyed. Many of the people, Sunnis of that area, complicit with ISIS at some level, are never going to feel safe going back to their houses. They're going to become refugees. And and that's the fear is the longer this war goes on, you know, one of two things can happen. Either Sunnis get increasingly driven out of their country or they win and revenge is taken against the others. And And, and I don't see how the Sunnis can win anytime soon. Now, that doesn't, you know, of course, I can't see what's going to happen in the more distant future. But today, they're so badly fragmented. The Sunni world is beleaguered. Turkey is inward looking. Saudi Arabia is completely ensconced in its war in Yemen. And it, it's the lower oil prices driven by fracking and so forth have weakened Saudi Arabia tremendously. Israel is very insular and I don't think wants to get sucked into the Syrian civil war. So it's hard to see where assistance to a Sunni rebel world that has been badly bruised and fragmented is going to come from and how it can turn around its fortunes. And in that sense, I think finding the faster the international community and Syrians and Iraqis find some kind of an accommodation that brings stability, the more people's lives will be preserved the less ethnic cleansing will go on. And and ultimately, it's an unhappy solution for many, but I think it'll be less violent because if you look at the balance of power, it's very clearly in favor 
of the pro-Iranian forces in this region today. Josh, thanks so much for joining us.